Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org.nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 30, Perak Lamed, of the Book of Eov. This is a continuation of Eov's speech, which began in the previous chapter. There, Eov recalled the good old days and his exemplary behavior. In this chapter, Eov brings us back to the present, to the unfortunate present. In his former life, he, he asserted, in the second to last verse of chapter 29, that he never laughed at the needy who came before him. However, that doesn't stop some from laughing at him with, now that he is in ruin, and we will encounter this laughter in the very first verse. We will see exactly who these laughers, who these scorners are shortly, and why their identity is so important. It's a very, very long verse. No doubt it's written that long to highlight or to really set a wedge which causes us to recognize the dramatic 180 degree reversal from true pleasure in the previous chapter to true sorrow in this chapter. Getting back to the verse... But now those younger than me in years laugh at me, and those whose fathers I wouldn't even give a job with my dogs shepherding my sheep. I'm sorry, it's a long verse and I'm trying to explain it. That is, the very people are laughing at me that not only would I not give them jobs, but even their fathers I wouldn't give the, the most menial, disgusting job of being a shepherd among my sheep dogs. Even if they had strength of, uh, in their arms, which means maybe they could even potentially do the job of shepherding, what do I need it for? Meaning, why would I hire these people to be shepherds among my dogs? Because their life is lost from them. We will see that Eov is not contradicting himself by talking about these peoples as irredeemable, this, this group as irredeemable. It's true that in the previous, ver- previous chapter, he said he championed the lowest of the low, he never laughed at anybody, he never shamed anybody. So at first glance, we might be surprised that he is scorning these people so much saying that he wouldn't even hire them to do a dog's work because of the fact that they are mocking him and laughing at him. However, as Eov will describe, we are not just talking about the poor and the needy here. We are talking about a human element that has completely removed itself from society. They have taken to the wilderness. They have removed themselves from cooperating with any legal and social system. They live outside of society. They live outside of the law. In Nach, in the Bible, we meet them as Anashim Rekim or Anashim B'nai Blial. They show up um, most famously in two places. Places, um, not only these two places, but quite famously in these two places. The first one is in David's first army when he was on the run for Shaul, and he puts together this army of outlaws, of people who became outlaws because they were forced into um, destitution. And the second 
group is Yiftach's army, the famous tribal leader in the book of Shoftim. The difference, of course, between those two stories, between David and between Yiftach, is while David was able to bring these outlawed people back into the fold and turn them back into a civilized society, with Yiftach they remained outlaws to the bloody end of his civil war. Now, Eov is going to detail the existence of these outlaws, of these brigands, all the way through verse 8. And not because he needs to wallow in self-pity at the fact that the lowest of the low of society is now scorning him. But they're not part of society. He's trying to point out that their lives stand for injustice. Their lives stand for being outside of the law. Therefore, their lives are diametrically opposed to his entire mission in life. Where Eov once brought light even to the most secret of disputes, and where he ensured fair and public justice, these outlaws, by ridiculing Eov, are not just shaming him, but they they shame the entire justice system that God wants. Therefore, what is happening now, their mockery of him should not just be intolerable on a personal level, it should be intolerable on a societal level as well. They live in destitution and starvation, totally bereft. They flee into the wilderness, their nights are nothing but desolation. They plucked the mallow, which is some kind of bitter or salty plant, from the wild shrubs, and the roots of the rotem, which is also some kind of desert shrub, are their bread, which means instead of having real bread to eat, they have nothing but these wild, uh, these roots of the rotem. Min gave yigorashu yariwalemu chaganav. From inside they have been driven out, which means from all normal society, from inside of towns and villages and from cities. They scream at them as if they were thieves. A lot of they's here, but the they scream means society yells at them whenever they see these brigands, these outlaws, they yell brigands, brigands as if they were, as if they were thieves. They dwell in the cracks of the wadis, in holes in dirt, in the dirt, and in boulders. The word kefim is Aramaic for boulders, which means they hide out in caves and nooks and crannies. They're outlaws in every sense. They bray, which means they make the sound of uh, donkeys. Among the vegetation, they are gathered together underneath the harul. The harul is some type of reed or very tall, springy plant in the desert or, or by the wadi or the vadis that provide shelter in the desert. And notice that as we go on, these people who are first described as humans, simply bereft of old society, who have abandoned old society, they take on more and more of the characteristics of animals, specifically the animal called the para, which is the wild donkey. Now, the word para, um, or the description of man as being a para adam, a man who is like the wild donkey, was first introduced, as you'll no doubt remember, in God's 
uh, essentially prophecy or determination of the future of Yishmael and Yishmael's nation in Genesis and Bereshit 16, really kind of declaring their desti- destiny as outlaws in the desert, who, as it says there, their hands would be against everybody and everybody's hands would be against them. So Eov is referring to, he's recalling this original description of this group living outside of the law in the desert, like wild um, uh, beasts who are constantly at, at odds with society. B'nai Naval Gam B'nai Shame Nik'u Min These are ignoble men, men without reputation, meaning without any good reputation, who have been scourged out of the land, meaning out of civilized land, out of inhabited land. Remember I mentioned the David story and his band of outlaws, and here the word Naval comes in quite strongly. The irony in that story about, about David was that he had gathered together these empty men, and he had converted them, he had raised them up into a disciplined force that had actually guarded the wealth of the people living in Yehudah, specifically the wealth of a very rich man named Naval from being plundered and pirated. So in the when David came to Naval to ask him for some monetary recognition of the fact that 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 essentially even though Naval didn't ask for it, he protected his his property and his people, Naval behaved to him, to David, in an, an ungrateful and completely uncivilized way. That's why his wife, Avigail, said about him, Naval is his name and Naval is what he is. So Naval is supposed to be the leader of, of, of civilization. David is supposed to be the outlaw. His people are supposed to be the outlaw. But Naval, who's supposed to be a leader of men, acts as a Naval. And David's originally Naval men have been brought back to their civilized behavior. And I think this verse recalls that story to some degree. Now, once the picture is drawn, Eov emphasizes the irony now. That is, he is emphasizing that the man, he himself, who represented justice, is now being set upon by people who reject it, by people who are diametrically opposed to the idea of building civilizations and justice. Ve'ata, and notice it begins with the word ve'ata, which I'm going to get back to later. Ve'ata neginata ma'yiti va'ehi lahem l'mila. Now, and now, I have become their song, and I have become for them a saying, which is like someone who scares their children, saying, you know, if you don't eat your vegetables or if you behave in a certain way, I'll sing you a song or tell you a story about that horrible Judge Eov who got his uh, for doing what he did. They make me abhorrent. They distance themselves from me. They do not spare the spittle from my face. Now, why do they treat me this way? Because my belt has been opened and he has afflicted me. Now, that's singular. So it means God has afflicted me. And therefore they, that is these outlawed and brigand people, cast reins about my face. Which is like the reins on the donkey. The And what we have here essentially is the roles are reversed. They were the wild donkeys. They were the para-adam who were lost to the wilderness, who avoided everybody and who uh, everybody screamed at them, brigand, brigand, so they hid themselves in the rocks and in the dirt. But here what's happened is they now have, because God has afflicted Eov, essentially 
causing a question to be brought upon the justice system. Since Eov represents the justice system, the reins are now taken off these people and they put the reins on Eov. He is made into the donkey. Al yamin pircha yakumu raglai shilechu vayasolu alai orchot edam. On my right are children who are still sprouting and they have risen up, meaning they rise up against me. Remember, he used to say how people used to hide from him in honor and now the even the littlest children uh, set me to flight. Raglai shilechu. And they pave ahead of me the road of their disaster, orchot edam. And what I think that means, is I'll, as I'll mention again, is that their road which is the road of injustice and the road of being outside of the law and outside of society, they have made their road my road and they forced me on their road. They break my road, meaning the road of justice. They add to my troubles for no benefit of their own. A very difficult pasuk, but I'll try this. They arrive like a wide gorge. They come rolling beneath the cover of desolation. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the image is, is here, but I think it's a continuation of how they have essentially taken Eov's way, the way of justice, and, and they've cracked it open, and they've sort of come in the cover of darkness to really destroy it. Hopach alai balahot tirdov karuach nedivati Demons of the underworld have turned against me. They chase my princehood, that is, my status as a prince, like the wind, and like a cloud, my salvation is past. Or perhaps, my status as other people's savior has passed. Of course, Balahot is just a personification of the terror that one experiences in times of great pain and loss. It's not trying to say that they're really demons of the underworld. The second image, though, with the wind, means that his status as a prince, which he thought to be solid, has now been scattered by, you know, with the wind. He was like a cloud, essentially, which is what he says in the last section of the verse, which he thought was secure, but when these Balahot took the form of wind, the cloud quickly deteriorates. Here in verse 15, Eov ends the comparison, the tension between his own way, that is the way of of justice, and his degradation by people who live in the opposite way, that is, who live in the way of outcasts and outlaws. So, to make it kind of like a modern image, it's as if the cop has been put away into a jail populated by the very people that he himself put away. Even though the picture here is quite clear, the cop is completely innocent, everybody really knows it, but woe be to the cop who gets incarcerated into the same place where the criminals that are there are the ones that he himself put away. So Eov has not only described his own personal nightmare, but he's described the corruption of the legal system itself. And now Eov returns to his sorry state. But in my opinion, there's a tremendous change here from what we've seen before. Because for the first time, we're really noticing Eov's using lament terminology, that is the terminology of sorrow and complaint, which is found in Tehillim. He says, And now, note that this is the third and now, the word ve'ata, which breaks up the, mo- the movements of this poetic speech into three parts. In verse 1, Eov introduced that, that section, that stanza with the word ve'ata. He started off talking about how he was mistreated by outlaws, but he really spent the entire stanza 
uh, until verse 8, talking about what makes an outlaw an outlaw so he can juxtapose or compare um, his way of life with their way of life. Then in verse 9, he again begins with the word vata, but then he, he returns to his own personal mistreatment and the iron of being turned into an outlaw and an outcast by outlaws and outcasts. And now we have the third vata, and now my soul spills out on me. In modern English, we might say my sorrow overwhelms me, and the days of my suffering seize me. Now, if we had the time, we could spend ages just on the beautiful poetry here, the images being drawn, the way the lamenter, Eov, is uh, passive and his suffering is active and it seizes him as if it had a physical presence or a, a personification of itself. But I really want to focus on another point. I want to get back to the idea that we are listening to a lament here. As I said, Eov is starting to borrow directly from Tehillim. Now, in Tehillim, there's a lot of lamenting and there's a lot of begging for salvation. And there's a lot of asking for forgiveness. And there's also a lot of asking God to lay off. But it never really comes off as chutzpahdik because in Tehillim, we always end off with the idea that the lamenter puts his complete trust in God, that God will surely save him. Now, we didn't have that before with Eov. God had no trust in God whatsoever. But now with God quoting from Tehillim, while he hasn't completely removed the bitterness from his soul, I think by the end of this little um, Tehillim section, we'll see that Eov is evolving. Um, this line, Tishtapech Nafshi, by the way, is nearly identical with the famous, to two sections in the famous Tehillim 42 and 43, um, which reads, Eila ez kirav nafshi, these things I remember and I spill my soul out on myself, very similar to our phrase here, and it's also similar to that Psalm's thrice repeated refrain, which is, Ma tishtochachi nafshi u ma tehemi alai, why are you so depressed, my soul, and why have you overcome me with anxiety? So I think the author is putting into Eov's mouth a direct quote or a near direct quote from Tehillim to show us that Eov is really, you know, coming along. Eov had quoted Tehillim before, um, but I think, first of all, never so overtly, as well as sometimes when he quoted Tehillim, he did it in sort of a mocking way. Um, here he seems quite serious, although quite sad. At night my limbs or my bones are gnawed upon, and things that bite me, the orkai, never sleep. Rashi translates orkai as my sinews, or those who chase me never sleep. But either way, the idea is that he's been eating, he's being, he's being eaten alive. A very difficult pasuk. Only with great effort are my clothes either disguised or changed. My clothes dress me like the neck of my cloak. I think the sense is that he's grown so emaciated that his robe must be cinched up like the neck of his shirt. That is, just getting his clothes on and off takes this tremendous effort of peeling the clothes on and off his body. Either that or it could be that God is the subject of this action. That is, not Yitchapes Levushi, that my clothes are being changed upon me, but that God is changing my clothes upon me. And then he may be um, talking in a metaphoric language about his skin, which is covered in boils and how he has to put on ashes and the boils come up again. So it might be um, an accusation against God, or it may just be an abstract idea because he doesn't want to accuse God directly as he had before. And he's just saying that his clothes lie ab- uh, upon him like an emaciated dead man that he nearly is. 
Um, I have to admit that from this verse on, including this verse, to the end of this psalm-like poem in verse 24, the language is very difficult to say the least. Now, there are two ways to translate this verse. One is that hora means to throw, in which case the subject is God. He, God, has thrown me to a dirt pile, and I have become destroyed like dust and ashes. And this is very accusatory against God. But there is another possibility that Horeb means to instruct or to teach. And this is much less accusatory because the sense would be, I am used as an example for a dirt pile and I have become a metaphor for dust and ashes. Now there's no quote, no question that, that he believes God is doing this to him, but he doesn't accuse God directly. And I think this is the process of him trying to be less confrontational against God. And now, for the first time, Eov turns away from his audience, which is us, the readers, and he, and, he, and he needs to address God directly. Note that that while we have much more accusatory language, uh, opening up the word Shava, to, which means to cry out for help, the word Shava opens up this poem in verse 20 and ends the poem with the same verb in verse 24 in the word Shava, the word Shava, or actually Shua as well. So what we have to do is look for sort of a self-contained unit and see where it goes. He turns to God, so it looks very accusatory, but I think we'll see that at the end, it's um, a great deal less so, at least, than he used to be in the previous chapters. I cry out to you, but you did not answer me. I stood, meaning in supplication, and you did not recognize me. And note that I'm copying the word low, not, from the first half of the poetic line to the second half of the poetic line. And this happens quite often in biblical poetry. For example, Tehillim 38 reads but we must it must be understood with the word low borrowed that it, the word al borrowed from the first section to the second section you must understand the verse as saying Adonai al don't uh, instruct me or rebuke me with your anger al you have to borrow that word al please do not discipline me with your anger. Ta- getting back to our uh, uh, Sefer, You have turned cruel towards me. You have harassed me with the power of your hand. There's no doubt that this is, you know, accusatory. It's direct. You have carried me away and driven me in the wind. You have melted away my success, meaning my ability to deal. Now, the phrase in the wind, uh, El Ruach, or towards the wind, is very strange. So Rashi tries to avoid, as I've been trying to do, a direct accusation against God, saying that the, the wind means these demons, these you know third parties, not God directly, but the wind, these demons in the wind, rode him away, and therefore his success melted away, but not that God was sort of directly involved. Um, I I think there's another way to understand this verse, which is he may be asking God to carry him away in the wind to sort of remove him from all of his troubles, although that's not the uh, easiest read. However, even in the next verse, we can read it, and not as an accusation against God, but sort of a non-accusatory, but just a fatalistic acceptance of the way God works. Indeed, I know that you will return death to me, the gathering place for all living things. So I know that I must eventually die, as does every living thing, but here's how he ends this poem. Again, as I said, we know it's the end of the poem because it opened up the word Shava or Ashavea, and it ends with the word Shava or Shua. Achlo vi'i yad, 
im bifido lahen shua. But not during prayer will he send out his hand, and there will be no disaster while those who cry, while those who are crying out to those who are still crying out in prayer. The word ba'i, by the way, comes from the um, Aramaic ba'i, which means to request or to add, and it's used a lot in Talmud, as all of you Talmud learners probably recognize. So again, Eov nearly turns accusatory to God. He's saying, you know, God does send out his hand to afflict, but he sort of backs off using language which is sort of vague. And instead of saying in this whole section, I, I think this whole section has to be taken more as, you know, bad things happen, rather than you, God, made these bad things happen. And in fact, he ends off with this following idea, that even though God is not listening to my prayer, which is how he opened up, he knows that as long as he still is praying, that somehow the ultimate destruction, the ultimate death, will be um, belayed, at least for the time being. And that's really the end of this section of his modern day troubles, his, his accusations against these outlawed people, um, his slightly less accusatory tone towards God, and maybe a little bit of hope that God will lay off as long as he continues his prayers. And now in verse uh, 25, a new section begins. And to be honest, this really should have been a start of a new chapter altogether, because what follows is a series of vows which Eov will make about his own innocence, and not only how he behaved, but the reasons why he behaved so well. And these vows will really continue and gather speed all the way to the end of this chapter and all the way through the very long chapter 31. Um, so we'll begin here, but uh, keep in mind we'll have to finish up this vowing section tomorrow. It's important, by the way, before beginning this vowing section, to review two terms. And those are im and imlo. When it comes to vows, im means I swear that I have not or I swear that I will not. You might want to replace the word im with lo for reasons that I've talked about in different shirim, but now I'll just sort of state it as an axiom. Im lo, which is the double negative, on the other hand, means that I swear that I have or I swear that I will. Therefore, in the coming pasuk, im lo bachiti l'kshayom ogman nafshi le'evyon means I swear that I have cried for the hard-knocked person. I swear that my soul was tormented for the needy. And based on the way that I empathize with them and the way I sympathize, kitov kiviti vayavora vayachalala or vayavo ofel. I expected good things because of my behavior, but bad things came. I waited for light, but in came the darkness. My innards boil they burn without cease. My days of misery have reached me. They are approaching me. Koder hilachti below chama kamti bakahal ashavea. I have walked in the darkness without sun. I arise in the congregation and cried out. Achayiti litanin virea livnot yana. I have become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. And these two animals are always mentioned when we're talking about uh, 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 those animals that occupy destroyed or abandoned cities. Ori shachar me'alai v'atzmi chara mini chorev. My skin is blackened upon me and my bones have dried up in the scorching heat. My lyre is used only, lyre as in L-Y-R-E, the musical instrument, is used only for mourning and my pipe, that is the musical pipes, accompany the sound of crying. Eov 
vows that he has behaved in the best of ways, and therefore his predicament is unacceptable and in fact incomprehensible. And Eov's vows will continue in chapter 31.